millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wait a minute. If they're going to let you go, how come we don't bring all the cash in the first time? Because I don't trust him. Now, the next trip, when I bring in the half meals, it's going to look like I'm doing the same thing as I did before. But you don't? No, I hand it to someone else first. Hmm. And they followed the wrong one, thinking she bringing the money to me. Hey, that's the idea. Where you plan on pulling this off? The Delamo Mall, the food court. And I suppose you see a piece of this for yourself. <laughs> it's my plan. We're in this together. Yeah, but it's my money, and I don't need no fucking partners. I ain't your partner. I'm your manager. And I'm managing to get your money out of Mexico into America in your hands. And I'm managing to do it all under the nose of the cops. So therefore, I'm your manager and a manager gets 15%. No, manager gets 10%. <laughs> no, that's an agent. A oh, manager gets... 10. No, no. A manager gets 15%. Agent gets 10. I'm getting 15%. All, all right? I'm going to give you is 10. And the same deal as before. I can do that. Welcome to Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. From our screens to your watch list, we gather to share and discuss your next favorite. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. And now, here's your host, Armand Haddad. Hello and welcome to another episode of Syndicate. I am your host, Armand Haddad, the season where I explain the cinematic adaptations of love stories. Today we are looking at the film adaptation of Rum Punch, by Quentin Tarantino as Jackie Brown. But before we attempt to smuggle $50,000 past customs, I am joined by a special guest, Kyle Sanders, a film journalist. Kyle, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Happy to have you. You see, we keep on meeting up at the Music Box, because mm-hmm. I think both times we met was at the Music Box. Yes, it's my favorite place in <laughs> all of Chicago to go to. Yeah. The first time we saw Joker... That was back in October 2019. Seems so long ago. In the before times. In the long, <laughs> in the long, long ago. <laughs> and then the second time, you dragged me, Simone, Simone's husband, to... What was, what was the movie called again? It was a 1980s horror film that was like a, a ripoff of Nightmare on Elm Street. And I can't even remember the title now, but 
I was just, <laughs> I was just so starved from the music box. You know, that was the one thing that the pandemic that it took away from me. And it was just a major, this is how nerdy I am. I mean, it was just such a major <laughs> effect on like, you know, Jesus, what the hell am I going to do with my Friday and Saturday nights now? So, yeah. um, so that was just an excuse just to get out, to go to the theater, to invite friends to go with me and to see a film that I had never even heard of, had never even seen. And uh, just to, you know, get that vibe going again. <laughs> and uh, I appreciated you all for sticking that out and uh, and watching it. I mean, it was fairly enjoyable. It did not make much yes. sense. No, but it was very enjoyable. Yeah, that was that was the joy of it, because like. Unlike Simone and his husband, Justin, I enjoy really, like, so bad they're good movies. It was a blatant ripoff, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes. But it just failed on every possible level. It, it was just hilarious. Yeah, there was no real through line for it. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, don't panic. I think that's what it was called. The only reason right. I remember that now yes. <laughs> is because at the end credits, the lead star of that film sang the theme song called Don't Panic. Yeah, I was like, don't panic. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That was the best part, the, the end credits. <laughs> it was like the cherry on top. Mm -hmm. So speaking of the joy of going to the movies, so you are a film journalist, my friend. So could you yes. tell me more about your experience being a film journo in Chicago? Okay, so, yeah, I, uh, I moved to Chicago in 2013. I moved on a whim. So like I, I didn't really have a set job. I just found like the apartment a couple of weeks before moving. And uh, that I will say, if you want any advice for moving to a big city, hire like an employment agency to find you a job. If you're moving <laughs> right away, um, it just works out much easier that way mm. uh, because it took a while for me to get on my feet. But um, one of the things that I, I love doing is, is writing, you know, reviewing, being a critic. And uh, a friend of mine who he had moved to Chicago a few years before me had uh, suggested that I join him at a um, this little volunteer program. But it's it's an actual organization, uh, the Chicago Independent Radio Project, otherwise known as CHIRP. And so I don't DJ. I don't DJ for them, but um, they have an, an online they have a blog and I just nice. kind of got involved with the blog uh, you know, most people do music reviews. Every once in a while, there might be a film review, but I was really the only one who was like, please just, I, I don't really know music, but I do know film. So that kind of became my shtick. Prior to joining Chirp, I, when I first moved here, of course, when you're on social media, you're posting like, oh, this is my first such and such experience in Chicago, yada, yada. Another college acquaintance, and she volunteered for the Chicago International Film Festival. Nice. And uh, so I went and uh, it was some film called, it was this Italian picture that mm. uh, I believe it was called Salvo, Silvio. It was touted as like the Italian answer to the film Drive, Ryan Gosling film, where mm. he was like a driver who spoke two yeah. words the whole time, but he's like a hitman. Yeah, um, I love that movie. Yeah, I saw that film three times at the theater <laughs> and I brought new friends each time because I was just so in love with it. Haven't watched it ever since, but uh, needs to say when this film was touted as the Italian version of Drive, I was like, sign me up. Uh, so she got me that ticket. I watched it. It was nothing like Drive. I was very disappointed. 
Uh, it was like some hit man who was hired to kill this man's sister. And he realized he didn't realize until he was about to kill her that she's blind. And then mm. he feels sorry for her and sympathizes with her. And then he does everything he can to save her life, even if it yeah. means taking his own. Ooh. But so that experience, I was like, eh, that film was so, so, but I kept going back every year because I thought film festivals and, and uh, city, this is what it's all about. I love film. Um, at the time, I wasn't really writing a whole lot. Um, I was taking maybe some freelance gigs here and there. But as soon as I joined up with Chirp, they were like, oh, you should, we could get you a press pass for this, you know? Yeah. Uh, so instead of, you know, seeing, normally I would just see like two of the hundred films that they uh, put on throughout that week. Um, I could now see as many as I wanted. And a lot of those wow. films, I didn't even have to pay for it. It wasn't even out of my oh pocket. My God. So it was great just to, and I didn't even have to go to the movie theater. They would just send me like a, uh, a streamer and I could oh. just watch it from the comfort of my own home. Nice. So, uh, because I live, uh, at the time I was living in Edge uh, Lakeview. Now I live in Edgewater, but uh, the International Film Fest takes place at AMC River East downtown. Yep. So that mm -hmm. is a trek for me. And so now I don't even have to, I don't even have to go all that way to watch a movie. I can just watch it from the comfort of my own home. Nice. Um, and since then, it's now no longer just like two films that I pick. It's, it's like 10 to, 10 to 12. I can't see all of them, of course. But that's the beauty of that film festival is that mm -hmm. it has all of these films that are just, you know, competing for, they have like an awards ceremony, but really it's just for mm -hmm. uh, viewership. I, I never really think about, you know, I do see foreign films in theaters here in America, but I never think about, you know, those are just like a select few that make it past the border, so to speak, right, right. Uh, to get uh, distribution here in the States. And mm -hmm. there are hundreds of maybe even thousands of others that just never really see the light of day in the right. U.S. So it's that's what's exciting about that film festival is that you get to see films that you know may not get a best international film feature academy award nomination uh but do get some uh buzz attention here in the states and you know you right. may never see them again to be quite honest a lot of the titles that i see in review i could not remember off the top of my head but <laughs> from their standpoint, you know, all of these films in America that we kind of take for granted because we were, we see them. I mean, we have access to them so easily that, um, you know, it's kind of the same thing in other countries. They have all these films that I'm sure they're fully aware mm. of, but we have no idea they even exist. Right. So um, that's what I love about the international film festival is not mm. only do I get to see uh, films from other different cultures that kind of have the same themes and the same uh, storylines as films that we see here in the States, but also mm -hmm. I get to see them for free that I <laughs> wouldn't normally get to see. Right. And so uh, that was primarily the first couple of years of blogging for Chirp Radio. But mm. since then, you know, when you kind of mingle or rub elbows with uh, film promoters in Chicago, you get a part, you get to be a part of their email list. So then you get emails from, you know, uh, Kino Lorber is one that just comes to mind uh, where they're getting ready to, you know, promote a film and they would like to send you a screener to watch and, and post on whatever media that you use. So, um, so that, that's kind of spun into, I not only have to 
get to review films and festivals, but now I get films kind of sent to me. They're never like big blockbusters, but, um, (laughs) you know, one of the most recent ones I reviewed was a documentary about the relationship with Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams. Oh, Oh, wow. Uh, It was just, it was just shown at the music box a couple of weeks ago. So, um, it did, it did have some uh, attention here in the city as well as the rest of the country. Mm. Um, so, and that's great. And then I also get invites to, uh, some other minor film festival. I shouldn't say minor, but, um, <laughs> you know, there's like the Chicago comedy film festival. I got to review a documentary, uh, about a standup comedian who still lives with his parents. And, uh, and then he was there at the screening and I got to interview him. And then there's other, like the doc 10, uh, they usually have like 10 documentaries, uh, oh, yeah. that get, uh, shown at, the theater in, I want to say, Lincoln Square, Logan Square, the Logan, what's that movie theater? Oh, there's the... Uh, it just got remodeled. Oh, the Davis. The Davis, yes. Yeah. Um, and those those are just strictly documentaries, but, um, and it's a very more, uh, you're, I'm more capable of reviewing yeah. all of them instead of just a few, but... Um, so that's what, that's what I, I mean, I don't, I can't, I, I like to say I'm a film journalist. Unfortunately, I'm not really a film critic because I don't get paid for my reviews, but <laughs> you know, someday, maybe someday, maybe this podcast will kind of help with that. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I do enjoy it because I just get to write about what I like to do, which is watching yeah. film and g- having my opinion shared. Uh, to the masses is all I could ever wish for. This is my opinion. Take it or leave it. Um, But do uh, most of my opinions are never too negative. I don't even know. Like I didn't go to film school. I didn't go to, I didn't study film criticism. I did take a few classes in film studies, film theory or whatever, but I never understand how, um, you know, film critics can really review a film and tell if it's really bad or really good. I mean, obviously there are some films like Don't Panic that <laughs> don't uh, make a whole lot of sense. But when there's other films that just kind of, you know, they they check off all the boxes or whatever. It's like, how do you give that a three star, four star, you know, two right. and a half star? Right. Um, so my opinion is usually just did I enjoy it? How many times did I look at my watch to see when it was going to end? Uh, did it make sense? Did it keep did me asleep? invested? Yes. <laughs> and you know, nine times out of ten, those films typically keep my interest. So, right. Uh, maybe I'm not a a strict film critic by any means, but I I do have my opinion, and I yeah. think it should be valued by everyone and be very right. appreciated. Yeah, like, I feel you. I don't really like the star system when it comes to, you know, judging a movie. It, it, oh, yeah. it helps. Like, yeah. It's like, oh, was, was it mediocre? Was it stellar? But I like your take on it. Like, was it, did I enjoy it? Did I leave the theater? <laughs> yeah. Was I entertained? Because ultimately, when we go to the movie theater, we want to be entertained yeah. by whatever, whatever we're watching. It doesn't have to be a comedy or an action. It could be you know, a drama or a dystopian and, you know, he can leave it be like, did I like that movie? Yes, I did. Absolutely. Did it keep me and did it keep me involved? Yeah. Like, was I, did it pique my interest or did I fall asleep and was it a very expensive nap? <laughs> right. And when, you know, when you're somebody who loves film and I'm not telling you like you go to the movies often, you really love film. 
uh, it can kind of, at some point you do kind of become a little saturated by mm -hmm. every film you see. So, you know, it is, there is part of you that's like, I want to come to be entertained, but also I want to, I want to see a film that's really going to blow my expectations away. Right. Um, you know, as a hobby of mine, I own a, a book it's uh, and it keeps getting updated. I only own the, the issue that came out like in two, at the end of 2002, the 1001 movies you must see before you die. Oh, okay. and uh, at this point in the particular book that I have, which goes only up to like 2002. So Chicago, mm. far from heaven, mm. Lord of the Rings, the two towers um, yeah. adaptation. Um, out of those 1,001 films, I am now down to at least 100 or even less. Really? That is how far I've gone. Um, you know, just wow. FYI, Chicago Public Library has a vast amount of DVDs aside from books to read. And uh, that's how I've been able to like crunch these movies out. And you know, if you rent a film from the library, it's free. So mm -hmm. it's a it's a, an easy way to save a buck and see these films that are considered you know important films of the canon, um, and they're you know they're not all they're not all <laughs> award winning films or you know necessarily like foreign important films of foreign cinema, but right. these are films that kind of still they might have been considered you know a mixed bag when they first came out, mm. you know like a film like uh, you know the Night of the Hunter. Uh, Charles Lawton's film, um, but have since kind of grown into like a, a cult following or have been re-examined in uh, a different light and, you know, are films that are kind of like ahead of their time. So right. bored you to death at the, at the, the moment that they came out, but have now bypassed a lot of the films that were probably considered better at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's uh, a great thing as well. You know, I also try to look at films from a standpoint of will this, will this be um, a film that will outlast the luster of now? Ooh. You know, there are a lot of films that get kind of praised right away for being mm -hmm. something great, but you know, 20 years down the road, they're not considered in a, in a, a bright light as they were when they first came out. You know, some right. films have snuck up past them since. So, um, but anyhow, yeah, so that's like 900 films that I have watched, plus all the other films that I have seen in my some odd years on this earth. Yeah. So there is very little that film can do now that really impresses me. Mm -hmm. um, so if I do find a film like that, then obviously I'm in high praise of it and, uh, and we'll give it a good review. But I also try to keep in mind that not everybody is me. You know, not everybody goes to see, they go to films just to, you know, spend two hours in a air conditioned locale. Mm -hmm. so, Seeing a film about family. Yeah. With, uh, Mr. Toretto. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I do have to also keep that in mind too. So yeah, I really liked how you put it with how some films stand the test of time, because I noticed that when, you know, looking back on so many movies, like with this podcast, you know, it is what it is, but we look at a lot of older films, like the one we're going to talk about soon, Jackie Brown, and I notice with a lot of new releases, a lot of them are sparks in the pan. Like, it's like, bam, it's like super loud and it's like exciting, but then it, fizz it fizzles away and people don't, don't really care anymore for that film. Well, yeah. some films, 
they're like a, a fine wine that mm-hmm. age over time. It's like, ooh, like this is really good. Oh, yeah. I'll take, you know, for example, and it's still a good, it's still a good film, uh, but American Beauty uh, from 1999. Okay. That film, uh, it kind of like blew everybody's mind. Like, oh, my God, uh, this like nuclear family, this, you know, uh, businessman, hot father and husband and his mm-hmm. do-good wife are miserable. Oh my God, that's so innovative, you know? Right. And now, I mean, you look at it now, and especially with the personal issues with Kevin Spacey, it's like, you know, <clears throat> what he's in trouble for now, he won an Oscar for playing a man who wanted to, you know, have sex with a minor. And, uh, you know, so mm-hmm. that film does not really, to me, I mean, there's still some pretty interesting uh, moments of it, but it, it got really parodied by, you know, other films with like the floating bag and what does it all mean? Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. But since then, I mean, th- there's those moments, but it really, I don't think it really gets talked about as much as say another film that I, I believe came out that same year being John Malkovich, mm. mm-hmm. uh, which is still... It's probably maybe the better film of that year that I can think of. I'm trying to think of other films that were nominated that year. Uh, Was that 1999? Yes. What about uh, Eyes Wide Shut? Nicole Kidman. That was nine. That was 98, and that was a film oh. that I think it it got a lot of buzz because it's like, oh, you know, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman naked, and Stanley Kubrick had just died, and. Right. Uh, but I, I think since then, it's kind of like been rejuvenated as far as mm-hmm. the appreciation for it now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. been 20 years. I, I think a film should be kind of looked at every decade or so and be like, OK, does this stand the test of time? Does it still have merit? And uh, I think a little less of American Beauty, but Eyes Wide Shut is certainly one that <laughs> I think has it's still interesting. It's a still, it's an, inter- it's a yeah. film that still piques interest. Um, mm-hmm. and being John Malkovich is another one too. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, we, we, no film ever gets it right. The first round, um, really the only, you know, people make a big fuss about Oscars and who's deserving and who should have won, who should not have won. Mm. But in mm-hmm. the end, I mean, it's really, the test of time like time is the real award <laughs> that any right. film can can appreciate or should be appreciated for and that goes with performances as well exactly so speaking of that so we're going to talk about the 1997 movie mm-hmm. Jackie Brown so speaking of so since this is like what 14 years later something like that like a significant passage of time has elapsed since this movie came out. So 14, it's like 20, 20 some odd years. Oh, right. No, not that much. It's not 2027 yet. Well, it's 1997. Oh my God. You know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This happens to me so many times. I'm like, (laughs) oh, it's not that long ago. (laughs) 2007, it would have been 10 years old. And 2017 would be, yeah, 20. So it's almost, it's about to have its 25th anniversary next year. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Time flies. Where has the time gone? Where has the time gone? Well, I feel like we've had a whole year stolen from us. So exactly. uh, I'm still like in 2020. 
Me too. Yeah, yeah. Me too. But yeah, okay. So yeah, this film is, it's about a quarter century old now. Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ. So I got to ask, with the fourth movie by Quentin Tarantino, how did you first encounter Jackie Brown? So um, I was 11, I guess I'm going to age myself here. I was 11 years old when Jackie Brown came out. So I was old enough to be aware of Quentin Tarantino. I remember Pulp Fiction being a big deal. I did not Mm -hmm. know why. But, um, like, I even remember my parents rented it on VHS, you know, it's, mm. hey, it's because it was the 90s. From Blockbuster. Um, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember they never um, filtered me, censored me from any film. Like, basically, I could hear adult language. I could see violence. If, uh, you know, a pair of tits ran across the screen, they would tell me to close my eyes. <laughs> but other than that, like graphic violence, graphic language, that was all that was all free reign. Mm. So they actually were going to allow me to watch Pulp Fiction. And I remember sitting there with them watching it. And it was, I, you know, the opening scene with John Travolta mm-hmm. and Samuel L. Jackson and just every word out of, mouth, out of their mouth was fuck. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I don't know, I must have been eight or nine years old. And I remember saying, you know what, this movie has the F word a lot. I probably should not be watching it. And then I left the room and went upstairs to play or something like that. But I think that was such a good thing because I don't know if I could have understood the, the whole scene with the gimp and Zed, you know, the mm, rape right. scene with Marcel Wallace. And I don't yeah. think my parents would want to have explained that. So it's probably a good thing I did not see that film until <laughs> my teen years. But right. I remember Jackie Brown kind of being a big deal because after Pulp Fiction made a huge splash in 94, uh, they were, you know, everybody was waiting on that follow-up from him. And so Jackie Brown was the follow-up, but, um, I don't remember my parents ever renting it. I don't remember a whole lot because I believe it came out the week after Titanic did. So that basically sealed its fate. You know, everything after that Mm. was just Titanic, Titanic, Titanic. Yep. So, um, I didn't really see Jackie Brown until it came on cable TV on Bravo when Bravo used to have like independent films and artsy is type Bravo films. Is Bravo still around? It is still around, but now it's all like Real Housewives and Watch it like It's just the all reality. channel now? <laughs> no, it's the Gay Man's Network oh, for sure. Maybe I'm lesbians. Oxygen. Were, that's probably what you're confusing <laughs> it for. But um, it did come on Bravo uh, a few years after it came out. So I remember kind of sitting down. And watching a little bit of it, uh, like I, I didn't catch it all from beginning to end. I caught it like midway and just being kind of enamored by Pam Greer because I really didn't even mm. know who Pam Greer was at the time. I remember she right. was kind of hitting the talk show circuits when that film came out and that she was like a big, you know, black exploitation star. Yeah. But I hadn't, I hadn't seen her act or whatever, but I was very enamored by her presence in that film and as well as you know, Samuel L. Jackson and uh, Michael Keaton and Robert De Niro, Robert Forster too. Mm. And, uh, and then, so I kind of had looked up the soundtrack and loved a lot of those songs, but I eventually caught it again from beginning to end on Bravo with all the language, you know, bleeped out or whatever. (laughs) And eventually uh, when I reached high school, I asked for it for Christmas they oh, had wow. released like the two disc special edition and uh, nice. that was around the same time as the two disc special edition of Pulp Fiction. So I got both of those for Christmas one year while I was in high school. And like, 
you know, any kid in high school who typically they, they go through their music phase of, oh, I've got to listen mm -hmm. to Zeppelin or mm -hmm. Bowie or, you know, uh, Tom Waits or, you know, somebody <laughs> that they've not, not really heard before, but they heard one song and now they got to go through their whole discography. That was me with Tarantino because that was around the time that he released his, his follow-up from Jackie Brown, which took him a while, uh, Kill Bill. Yes. And uh, so I got to see Kill Bill volumes one and two uh, in high school, but then I got to rewind and trek uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown. So I kind of went through, I think all high school mm. film geeks do, they go through their Tarantino phase. So um, that's how I approached it. And then I didn't really think about Jackie Brown for probably 10 years and then caught it on, I don't know, HBO Go or Netflix mm -hmm. or something like that and just rewatched it. And, you know, talk about films that stand test of time. I think that film is perhaps Tarantino's best. And Ooh, uh, hot I take. Yeah, very hot take. <laughs> um, but it's also, I think, not only probably the best film of 1997, sorry, Titanic, but one of the best films of the 90s decade period. Mm. Like, it just, it's because it's okay. one of those films that deserves repeated viewings. Like, you catch something new with it every time because it's all, you know, Jackie Brown is playing everybody, but then the people right. that she's playing are playing each other. So mm -hmm. it's really interesting to catch like the facial expressions or the, the double takes or, you know, the language that's used um, from that film and how everything is kind of set up very much like a game. And mm -hmm. um, so it's just always more fun to watch each and every time you watch it. Right. Like for me, I watch this movie based on your recommendation because I've never seen Jackie Brown before until the other day uh, watching it. And I was completely blown away Yeah, for multiple reasons. The big reason is one, which we're going to get into. This is the only adaptation so far. He still has one more movie to do and none of his other movies are adaptations. So this is the only adapted screenplay yeah. that he did. And the other thing is, it's a very subdued Quentin Tarantino film. Like, it still has the gratuitous violence, but it's, it's toned down. It has the language, but it's toned down. Yeah. The entire movie's toned down, but it keeps the aesthetic that Quentin Tarantino has with his films. Right. All the same sort of long tracking shots um, mm -hmm. or points of view. Um, you know, there's always, he always has like a trunk that opens up. There's always yes. a scene of the shot in the trunk and you see the, the trunk open up and somebody mm -hmm. looking down. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, it has all of those elements, but it's very, you know, all the violence that really takes place in that film kind of takes place outside of, uh, off, off the camera. Mm -hmm. um, you know, without giving a whole lot of weight, you don't really see a whole lot of blood spattering. Uh, you mm -hmm. don't see any you know gratuitous gunshots there is a lot of gunshots but everything is kind of off camera or out of out of focus um so it's very it's not obviously it's not pg rated but it's very <laughs> pg for tarantino yeah um yeah because like the first tarantino film that i saw was actually inglorious bastards okay back that's in another favorite of mine yeah, like for me, I'm sorry, but I think Inglorious Bastards 
is Tarantino's masterpiece. <laughs> okay. so that's just my humble opinion. But Jackie Brown, oh my goodness. Yeah. That was This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's such a great slow burn, which is kind of not Tarantino's MO. Like Tarantino no. definitely likes spectacular things and like... Gratuity is an understatement for Tarantino, and he knows it. Subtlety is not his uh, speciality. Yes. And so seeing him make a film that's more, quote, conventional, mm -hmm. like it obviously showcases that Tarantino knows what he's doing. He just, when he makes a film, he wants to make a film that he enjoys. Yeah. And what he enjoys is a lot of violence and a lot of uh, language and, you know, this insane uh, situations that he puts these characters into. Absolutely. And uh, I, do we want to kind of, because I, I did read Rum Punch. So we, we touched upon it earlier. So this is, a, this is adapted from Elmore Leonard's book, Rum Punch. Yes. And he is a prolific author, but unfortunately I haven't read any of his work. He does a lot of Western books and yeah. crime and suspense. And a lot of his films have been adapted for the screen. Um, but you're right. This is the, so far, this is the only Tarantino film that he has adapted from original material. Right. And, uh, but the funny thing is, is I, I read Rum Punch just a few weeks ago. Again, I, Jackie Brown is now on HBO Max. I recently rewatched it. And then I was mm -hmm. like, huh, I should read the book. And, uh, and that's kind of how I do any sort of, movie that's adapted from a book i will typically see the movie first and then read the book mm -hmm. most people read the book and then they see the film but i find i'm less disappointed by the film yes and then appreciate the book more yes. uh, after i see the film but uh this adaptation is pretty close to the nose you know really you you get the sense of you know the dialogue of tarantino films well Surprisingly, a lot of that dialogue that's in Jackie Brown is originally in Elmore Leonard's novel, Rum Punch. Really? Uh, yeah. Like, really, there's, there's only subtle things like, um, you know, when uh, Max Cherry comes to visit Jackie Brown to retrieve his gun and she's putting on oh. records. They have a little bit about talk about music. That's a Tarantino thing. Uh, you know, them talking about getting older or whatever. That's, that's a Tarantino thing. Like, pop cultural... St relevant stuff that goes on between people that's primarily tarantino's shtick but a lot of the discussions on how the plan is going to work or the dialogue between jackie brown and the um the feds that are 
tracking her too. A lot of that is in the book, actually. Really? Uh, the only real differences from Rum Punch to Jackie Brown is Rum Punch takes place in Florida. Mm-hmm. Jackie Brown is in, you know, Tarantino's L.A. Yep. And uh, in the book, it's not Jackie Brown, it's Jackie Burke, a white stewardess. Mm-hmm. But in Jackie Brown, she is a black stewardess. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, you know, Max Cherry is actually divorced. There's a little bit more uh, interaction with his ex-wife, who has a art gallery in the mall where the whole hit goes down. Mm. So that's kind of how he crosses Jackie's uh, path when she's there mm. to meet Ordell. And um, there is a, a minor character, he goes, I think they call him the Nazi, who owns all of these guns that Ordell is trying to take over that guy's business. So they right. plan a hoe. There's like a subplot in getting this guy's business, Ordell taking over that guy's business. But it is so like, you know, ineffectual with the novel that I'm glad Tarantino left that out and just kept the meat and potatoes because the rest mm-hmm. of it goes pretty, I mean, it's a pretty close adaptation. It's probably one of the best um, that if you were to read Run Punch first and then see Jackie Brown, you would not be disappointed. Exactly. And let's get into those meat and potatoes Okay. with the 60-second elevator pitch. Please stand clear of the closing door. So for those that don't know, if you're selling a movie to a friend, you really only have 60 seconds to do so. So today on Syndicate, we are going to simulate that by putting 60 seconds on the clock. Kyle, you are going to pitch me Jackie Brown by summarizing the entire plot within 60 seconds while avoiding major spoilers. Okay. Are you uh, ready? I, I could probably get it in 60 seconds or less, I think. <laughs> I might stumble around, but yes, I am ready. All right. So I have uh, 60 seconds on the clock. So we are going to start the pitch. In three, two, one, go. How does a has-been, washed-up, 40-something flight attendant working a low-rate job as a stewardess for a podunk flight airline (laughs) get out and make it on her own? She smuggles in half a million dollars for her Mm -hmm. shitty crime boss who hires her by getting help from a bail bondsman and foiling the feds. Will her plan work? Will she get out finally? Will that half a million be taken, stolen, or will she be double-crossed? Find out in Jackie Brown. (laughs) All right. With With 10 10 seconds to spare. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Was that good? Was that a good elevator pitch? That was absolutely fantastic. So she, like, this is a a crime movie where seemingly, like we put it earlier, everyone's trying to double cross each other Mm -hmm. to get this money. I mean, you know, it is 1997, $1 million. So that's a lot of money. Yeah. It's a lot of money. I I would still (laughs) take it to this day. Yes. (laughs) So I have to ask, um, going back to Rum Punch, uh, so Jackie Burke in the book, a uh, 40-something white lady, and then in the movie, it's Jackie Brown, mm-hmm. played by Pam Greer, who it's kind of like an homage to her more famous character, Foxy Brown. Yes. So do you think the transition from the book being, 
you know, kind of like Miami South Beach aesthetic to LA black exploitation inspired story. Do you think that was a good transition with the subject matter or do you think it's kind of like apples and oranges? I I think it was. Um and again, when when you see a movie and then read the book, you already the characters in the book, you already are picturing them as the characters from the film. Mm. Um and so when I would read the dialogue or read uh, the descriptions of Jackie Burke and Rum Punch and her motivations and her mannerisms. I, I could see Pam Greer wow. doing that character in the film. Um, just the way she smokes her cigarettes, the way she, you know, kind of plays people, the way she responds. Like Jackie Brown or Jackie Burke in Rum Punch is just as calculated, is just as like, you know, predicting each move of the pawn before anybody else as Jackie Brown in the film is. So I think it was a great idea. I mean, I think the, uh, the idea, you know, because Pam Greer auditioned for Pulp Fiction. She was supposed to play, well, she was going for the role that Roseanne Arquette had as like the pierced wife mm. of the drug dealer. And okay. uh, Tarantino obviously didn't choose her, but I think he had something in mind for her. And so when he, um, after Pulp Fiction came out, he and his producer, Lawrence Bender, um, bought the rights to Rum Punch, Kill Shot, and another book that he was actually going to adapt Kill Shot and the other book and not have somebody else do Rum Punch. But then he flipped it, adapted Rum Punch, and then gave Kill Shot and the other film to somebody else. But, um, but I think when he was reading Rum Punch, he decided he really it inspired him to want to make that film again. And I think that's why he had Pam Greer in mind is he wow. had, you know, he had met her once before and then kind of had her uh, had her in mind for that character. But then obviously changed it to Jackie Brown from Jackie Burke. And I think mm -hmm. that was a smart move. I mean, you know, not only is that film, people do call it black exploitation. Or like an homage to black exploitation. I'm, mm -hmm. I've not seen too many black exploitation films. I've seen, you know, Sweet Sweet Back and uh, Shaft and uh, Oh Shaft. I have seen a little bit of Foxy Brown. I haven't seen it all, but uh, my my take is that you know it's it's getting revenge on the man and you yes. know switching that character. Usually, you know, persons of color and you know mainly white male produced films are typically mm -hmm. the the secondary characters or, you know, the characters that are expendable, whereas in black exploitation, they're like the lead characters. They succeed in the yeah. end and they drive mm -hmm. off into the sunset. And in a lot of ways, uh, that's how Jackie Brown is. You know, she is a person of color, but the great part is, is that she is a middle-aged, so to speak, you know, woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's not this wizened criminal you know, while she does work with Ordell, uh, who is sort of the criminal in this film, she doesn't pay any attention to what he does. She just kind of smuggles in his money. Um, mm -hmm. And she does it just to make ends meet, you know, and she had been right. caught doing something previously. And so now she has no choice but to work at a podunk airline and uh, mm -hmm. barely making ends meet. And she's just looking for her way out. And she meets this bail bondsman who is also middle-aged, um, was balding, you know, in the book, he's divorced, going through divorce, but in the film, it's never really described. You, you just assume he's kind of single and kind of a loner. Mm -hmm. 
and they develop this, uh, you know, kind of casual relationship that, uh, they end up, you know, getting one on the man and, uh, you know, kind of succeeding. So I think it's great that that film or that Tarantino even thought to make it about a middle-aged black woman, because that wasn't really a character that I don't think had really been mm. seen uh, before then. Right. Like it is a bold decision from both the book and the movie to have these people past their prime. Yeah. Like, Typically, when you're watching a movie like this, it's going to be, you know, imagine like Ocean's Eleven. Like, it's going to be, you know, yes. young people, uh, you know, strapping young guys or beautiful women. And then with Jackie Brown, it's people that... Um, a flight attendant and a bail bondsman. I mean, how boring can you be? Average people. Yeah. Like, you know, like uh, working class or uh, middle class people that are thrusted into this you know situation where people are running guns and profiting from it and trying to smuggle in money from mexico like it's it's an interesting situation and it makes you kind of root for those characters even more because it's like ah i can see myself in these characters (laughs) yes i can see myself working for a low rate uh airline for sure i can't see myself (laughs) as a you know uh, uh, an illegal gun runner or, you know, owning several properties with all my, with all my hookups, you know, staying at each one. Uh, but I, I can see myself working those jobs where, you know, Max Cherry, uh, even says, you know, I was in the middle of my job the other night, you know, waiting on this guy to come in and I was in his house, just waiting with my like, uh, stun gun, yep. the whole place reeked of cat piss. And I'm just like, what am I, what am I doing here? And, you know, right. I've had those jobs where I'm, like, working really hard to make very little, and I'm like, what the mm-hmm. hell am I doing here? So those characters right. are very relatable. Mm-hmm. And it's like with uh, Max Cherry's character, like, he said he was doing that for 19 years. So say yeah. he's, like, you know, 40. So he started, like, when he was, like, 20. When you're 20, it's like, okay, I mean, gotta do I'm what not, you gotta yeah, do. Yeah, I'm not gonna do this forever. Something better will come along. That's how they always think, you know? Mm-hmm. Tack on a couple decades, it's like, what am I doing with my <laughs> life? I'm still Where doing this. Where did the time go? Right. Um, so, yeah, I, de- I really liked uh, Robert Forster's character with Max Cherry. Because, like, he just seemed like a guy. Yeah. Just a guy. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's also typical Quentin Tarantino is, you know, picking these two actors who had, like, a heyday uh, mm-hmm. of, you know, obviously... Pam Greer's heyday would have been 70s, and Robert Forster was yep. kind of that up and rising star, that kind of moody actor who was in a you know a lot of rough films or whatever. But neither had had a lead role in in years, and kind of like what he did with John Travolta's career with Pulp Fiction, he brought back Pam Greer and Robert Forster into you know into relevancy. Um, you know, Robert Forster scored, I didn't, I didn't, I'd forgotten that he scored an Oscar nomination for Jackie Brown. Um, really? Yeah. Best supporting actor who I guess he lost, he lost that year to Robin Williams for Goodwill Hunting. Was Pam Greer nominated for an Oscar? She was not. And that was so disappointing. She did get Mm -hmm. like a Golden Globe nomination, a SAG award nomination, but came up short, uh, 
for Oscar nominations. I know that, that is a snub. Yeah, I know that year was I, Helen Hunt who won for As Good as It Gets, Kate Winslet for Titanic. I think <laughs> I think Judy Dench for Mrs. Brown. And they chose the wrong brown. They chose the wrong brown. <laughs> yes. Um, and then I forget the other two. That's how unmemorable the other characters wow. were. Um, Damn. Yeah. Okay. So, and yeah. I, I wouldn't have expected, I don't know if Jackie, if Pam Greer would have won the Oscar, but I think she was definitely deserving of that recognition. And, you know, for the fact that not too many uh, black women get a best lead actress nomination, that mm-hmm. would have been a great way. Had, had that film come out now, I think she would have been a shoe in you know, oh, yeah. uh, the Academy has certainly been trying to make amends for lack of diversity in their nominations. But, mm-hmm. you know, for 25 years ago, it was just not going to make the cut, according right. to them. So, right. Um, I know Quentin Tarantino was not happy with her not being nominated. Yeah. And he definitely believed she deserved it. I was, you know, Best Supporting Actor was the only nomination that film got. I'm surprised it didn't get an adapted screenplay nomination. Uh, yeah, because I think what Tarantino did with Jackie Brown is like a hallmark of a great adaptation because like it's not straight to screen. It's like he took the, the bones, the skeleton, and was like, I'm going to make this my own thing while yeah. still being faithful to the source material. Right. And I, I think if he was to adapt any book, I think Elmore Leonard is his man. And I think that's he probably trusted himself knowing that there's no I could not. I can't uh, adapt Faulkner. I can't adapt Hemingway. Uh, you know, I can't adapt Oscar Wilde. But <laughs> Elmore Leonard, he's he's my guy. He's you know, what, I mean, look at the character names: Max Cherry, uh, Ordell. Uh, is it Robbie or Roby? I can't. I've seen him so many times, and now I think, I think it's, it's Robbie. Robbie. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, those types of names you would think would be made up. Those just sound like a would be featured in a Tarantino film. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the characters were right for uh, Tarantino, the dialogue and the, the whole, the whole plot line too. Right. So let me ask you this, since you're a Tarantino guy. So there was some talks a couple of years ago that Tarantino, and he expressed this, he wanted to make a Star Trek movie. Uh-huh. Do you think it would have had a Jackie Brown type uh, treatments if you were to do a Star Trek movie? I I don't know. I could definitely see, had he made the film, you know, 20 years ago, I could see Pam Greer starring as uh, Lieutenant Yuhura. Is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, probably more like 30 years. I don't know. I, I don't know how old Pam Greer is, I, but I assume she's no spring chicken these days. Um, <laughs> but I... I I don't know. I don't know. To me, I'm, I'm only used to the 1960s Star Trek where the, the dialogue is very kind of stilted <laughs> and uh, kind of very dry. I don't know if I could really picture a Star Trek in the vein of Tarantino, but would I see it? Oh, hell yes. I mean, I would love to see <laughs> what he does with it, um, but I'm not a Trekkie, yeah. so I'm sure there okay. would be some Trekkies who'd be like, no, 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 you don't. Oh, of course. You don't use your phaser that way, or you know, you don't, you don't talk that way when um, Klingon motherfucker. Do you speak it? Beat me up, motherfucker. 
<laughs> but I, but I would still see that film. I would probably enjoy it. I, but I don't know um, what it would actually look like. Okay. <laughs> All right. So back to Jackie Brown. If we could talk briefly about the cast, I was so surprised because I just went into it blind. Uh-huh. You're like, I just read Rum Punch. And I was like, oh, great. It's based on Jackie Brown or Jackie Brown's based on Rum Punch. And I was like, cool. I never saw it. So let me check it out. So I just watched it blindly. And I was surprised to see Robert De Niro was in it. Michael Keaton. Yeah. Chris Tucker. I'm yeah. Like, what is happening? <laughs> It's, I was so uh, surprised. Yeah, you know, it's not... Uh, I, to me, every film that he has done after Jackie Brown has had more of a, an expanded ensemble of characters. Mm-hmm. But his first couple of films there were very much a uh, confined group of characters that he focused on. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it wasn't just some, like, walk-on from some famous actor as some, like, down-and-out character. These... These characters have time to breathe and and interact with one another, and it's a you know it's an ensemble that for the most part, are primarily every scene they're just hanging out. You know, there's no real yeah. you know the sting doesn't take place until two thirds through the film, and then yeah. after that it's just more hanging out, um, which I think is is really great for that ensemble because it just gives them time to breathe and to relax and talk to one another and interact. And mm-hmm. it's, it, to me, that's better than, you know, uh, I, 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 an ex- extended action sequence or, you know, any sort of um, intricate camera tracking of uh, a car chase or whatever like that. So mm-hmm. I think those characters are well played by the actors. I think even Robert De Niro's character was supposed to be played by Sylvester Stallone initially. Oh, and okay. uh, yeah, and I think even Tarantino considered Paul Newman and uh, John Saxon for the Max Cherry role before he gave it to Robert mm. Forster. But they all—I mean, those actors really play to their senses and are just phenomenal. Oh yeah, like Robert De Niro. I just loved the subtlety with his acting with his character uh, Luis. Yeah. And he really doesn't, you know, fly into like his hotheadedness until, you know, during that sting operation where he's getting pissed off at Melanie. It like adds a level of natural, you know, acting with it. Like him not, it doesn't feel like he's playing a character. It feels like he's actually, you know, this guy that just got out of jail. Yeah. And he's working with Samuel Jackson's character, Ordell. That's a great performance by Samuel L. Jackson, too. I think he considers Mm -hmm. it his favorite. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because there, okay. there isn't really any, you know, he's kind of used to uh, having, you know, I don't want to say hot-headedness, but he'll be given a monologue where he's mm-hmm. kind of elevated the whole time. Yep. And in this film, he's, he's a character who thinks he's cool, he thinks he knows what's up, but he's play, being played just as hard as all the characters he thinks he's playing himself. Mm-hmm. His character is also kind of... Uh, a subdued than some of the other characters that he's known for playing. Right. Snakes on a plane. Yeah. Being one of them. <laughs> exactly. I do believe uh, Jackie Brown is the film that he says the word motherfucker the most times in any film he's ever been in. Really? Like it's like 38 times. I think that word oh, is said. Wow. Okay. So for your, wow. just for your knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
One last question before we go into our final segment. So with Samuel Jackson, Quentin Tarantino and Sam Jackson are like peanut butter and jelly. Mm-hmm. Like you can't have one without the other. And I feel like Tarantino has to hurry up and make his final film because Mr. Samuel Jackson, even though he doesn't look like it, the man's 72. Yeah. I just found that out not too long ago. Yeah. <laughs> like he aged so gracefully, yes. but like he's, he's still, he's, he's a senior citizen. Yeah. I just wonder what Tarantino's final film is going to be so, you know, after watching this. There's been a little discussion about that because, re, you know, he came out with the novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he has been, he's said that, you know, most film, most great filmmakers, the last film they ever do is their worst. So he's like, you know what? I may just stop at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because that film was heavily praised. It was a big hit. It got all these nominations and people really responded well to it. I may just stop there. I hope he doesn't. Huh. I, you know, I hope okay. he does do 10 because that's his ninth film. I mean, I feel like he should have a 10th film. And I also yeah. think that what he is not putting into consideration is that a lot of those great filmmakers, their last film is like the last film they make before they croak. And I don't know right. how old Tarantino is. I don't know. I, I don't think he's 60 yet. I, I don't know. But, you know, but he's still relatively young. He still has the vigor to make one last film, I think. And uh, I hope that he does not hold himself to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as his last film. I, it should be something, you know, because honestly, you know, it's that film is set around the Manson murders. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see him do a film that is not really necessarily set around a historical event, like it's, you know, another mm. pulp fiction or something. To me, I, and he even joked like he would remake Reservoir Dogs, but yeah. with like a, a, a di- more diverse cast than all white men. Mm. Okay. Which I think would be interesting, you know, to end with the film that's the same title as the film that got you started. Uh, but I, I do hope that he kind of ends on a high note like he will do his 10th and final film in the next decade uh while samuel l jackson is still alive i think he should just do a new film but with like every everybody who makes up his cast is like a principal character from his previous film so it's a film that stars Mm -hmm. samuel l jackson Mm -hmm. uh pam greer unfortunately not robert forster who passed away Mm -hmm. uh but you know john travolta tim roth (laughs) Steve Buscemi, yeah. uh, you know, all of those greats, Brad Pitt, Leo DiCaprio, mm-hmm. uh, Christoph Waltz, like just have, don't add new people, just add the people that have been in your previous films that had like mm-hmm. fairly substantial roles and give them new roles, new characters to play and have them interact. Always leave the audience wanting more. Yes. And if you were to stop with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that would be a safe It would decision. be. It would be. And maybe that is the right decision to make, but I think he's not old enough to be completely out of it. That he he still no. he wouldn't be he would be disappointed. I don't think I don't think any of his films really disappoint. Um, mm-hmm. I think there are some films that are better than others. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, in fact, I'll just go ahead and give you my ranks. So number one, Jackie oh. Brown, obviously. Jackie Brown. Uh, number two would be Inglorious Bastards for me. Oh. Um, and then uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wow. Followed by uh, Pulp Fiction. 
Oh my goodness. Django Unchained. Oh my goodness. Uh, I'm going to count Kill Bills Volume 1 and 2 as 1. Okay. That's really low on the list. It's one of my favorites, but I think <laughs> considering the other ones, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't have as much of a cultural impact as the other. Mm, um, okay. So what is it? Kill Bill, then uh, Reservoir Dogs, Hateful Eight, then Death Proof. Oh, I think okay. I think I got them all. You hear that, Tarantino? You wasted <laughs> your time at Grindhouse. <laughs> well, and that's that's also I think a significant thing about Jackie Brown is like after every film, every film that came after Jackie Brown has really been more of an homage to some other genre. So obviously, when he came back with Kill Bill, it was kung fu films, spaghetti westerns. Inglorious Bastards was like the gritty war films of like the late mid to late sixties. You know, Death Proof was obviously an homage to Grindhouse films. Uh, Django Unchained to me is more black exploitation uh, mm-hmm. in that realm. Oh, yeah. um, Hateful Eight is he's called it like those like special episodes of of TV westerns where all the bad guys are in one room together and they're you know interacting. And then you know, Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood is like an homage to buddy films like Butch and Sundance and uh, mm-hmm. those types of films. Like, to me, Jackie Brown is, I don't really, I guess there is black exploitation sort of an homage there, but to me it is very much not really an homage or a send up, but um, it has those elements, but it is very much like a mature film mm-hmm. and everything since then, not that they're bad films, but they just don't, um, there's a, a gimmick. Mm. Yeah. So let me pitch you what I think Quentin Tarantino's final film should be. Okay. So now there's a caveat with this because, so you know the Godfather trilogy? Yes. Or the duology, as some people want to think of it as. (laughs) So the Godfather 3 is like panned by like almost everybody. Yeah. And it wasn't, it didn't live up to one and two. So let me propose you Kill Bill Volume 3. Okay. So he could end his career with a Kill Bill Volume 3 of like an aged Uma Thurman, kind of like Think Logan, uh, the movie about Wolverine. Yes, like yes. His final hurrah, the final uh, end of his life. Like think of like an aged Uma Thurman, like the end of, her, end of the road for her and... I don't know what that plot would be. Like maybe, I think it would be uh, Vernita Green's daughter, uh, Vivica Fox's character's daughter, coming back to avenge her mother's death. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Because, because uh, the bride even says, when you grow up and you still feel raw about it, I'll be waiting. So I feel like that would be a great way. You know, the bride got her revenge. She got her daughter. Mm-hmm. She got to live her happy life. And maybe now would be the time where, you know, she takes her final bow with Bernita Green's daughter. And somehow L Driver, who, you know, spoiler alert, we never know her ultimate fate. She just gets her eyes plucked out, would somehow be like the trainer of Bernita Green's daughter. Like Bernita Green's daughter would seek her out and would somehow L Driver would train her to be like a samurai warrior. Mm. And it would all lead up to the big duel. Yeah. I think that would be a nice way to like ride off into the sunset as Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. If done correctly. Or it could be disastrous. One or the other. (laughs) It can't be both. It can either be one or the other. All right. Or he does something that he has never done before, which is science fiction, and he does that Star Trek movie. I would see it. Again, I would, <laughs> I would like to see what that is like. Uh, okay. So to end the show, here on Syndicate, we like to do the one reason why. So what is the one reason you'll give somebody to watch Jackie Brown? If you are a, not a fan of Tarantino films, <laughs> please watch the most, the closest anti-Tarantino film in his collection, Jackie Brown. You will be pleasantly surprised and enjoy it and perhaps change your mind about Quentin Tarantino. Mm. Very nicely put. So I'm going to somewhat echo that statement by saying this Tarantino film is so overlooked because it's not like his usual movie. And I think everyone should watch it because it showcases the man, the director that Tarantino is at heart. And he obviously knows his stuff. So to see an artist fully, you know, express himself on film in a non-gratuitous way, Jackie Brown is that movie. Amen. But that's it for this time on Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. We've been talking about Jackie Brown by Quentin Tarantino. Please check it out where it is available. And now I would like to take a moment to thank my guest, Kyle, for coming out to the show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And in the future, if you're ever scraping at the bottom of the barrel for guests, there you will find me looking up, waiting ever so patiently. (laughs) No, Uh, you are a great guest. And... um... You are definitely welcome back anytime. And hey, maybe we can go to the Chicago International Film Festival together. Yes. If it's happening in person this year, because last year was just all virtual. It was, yes. It was basically what I was doing um, while the films were in the theaters, just sitting at home watching these screeners. But um, so there's always that. And uh, there's always Music Box, too. Yeah. Seeing another B movie at the (laughs) Music Box. I love it. Just not Don't Panic. (laughs) Oh, man. But if you'd like to keep this conversation going, please add us on your favorite social media platform at Syndicate. That is C-I-N-E-D-I-C-A-T-E Syndicate on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. 
Have questions or film recommendations, please send your emails to info at syndicate.com or visit the website syndicate.com. And until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Goodbye. I was the third brother of five Doing whatever I had to do to survive I'm not saying what I did was all right Trying to break out of the ghetto was a day-to-day fight Being down so long, getting up didn't cross my mind But I knew there was a better way of life And I was just trying